learn how to build a better sign and print shop from a few crusty sign guys who've made more mistakes than they care to admit. Conversations and advice on pricing, sales, marketing, workflow, growth, and more. You're listening to the Better Sign Shop Podcast with your hosts, Peter Kurunis, Michael Riley, and Bryant Gillespie. All right, guys, welcome to the next edition of the Better Sign Shop Podcast. I've got, as always, the Sign Shop Yoda, Peter Karunas, and Mayor McCheese or Sign Burrito, Mike Riley. <laughs> the search continues? Are we? Did we settle on one of those? I hope not. I, I don't even understand where Mayor McCheese came from. No. I don't know, but it is, an, it is a great name. <laughs> I, I, it has my vote. I voted on it ten times on the poll. I <laughs> I like the sign burrito better, and I have the costume for it too. I feel like I should have it on right now. We'll wait. We'll pause if you want to put it on. Uh, I'll wear it on the next episode. <laughs> I'm shy. I don't want you guys to watch me get dressed. No worries. We'll let you slide this time, but next time. All right. That's what I mean. If you're not going to wear it, what's the point? What's the point? All right. So, so what's <laughs> new with you guys? Aside from no final on the nickname yet. Or Pete, Peter, are you back from staycation? It's a rinse and repeat grind right now for me. Mon- Monday bleeds into Thursday and Friday just as quickly as it ever has. Yeah, I know how that feels. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in full in panic mode over here. I, I, I'm getting married in exactly four weeks, uh, and I'm terrified. <laughs> it just kind of hit me. And I, I don't even know. I don't have a suit. Like it, my entire life pursuit has been in, in in search of a lifestyle where I don't have to own a suit. And I've I've finally achieved that that goal, and now I have to go buy a suit, and I'm I'm dreading it. So I'm I'm just. Do you have a wedding party, Mike? Do you have uh, a wedding doing really party? Small. Really we're doing small? a really small wedding. So, yeah, it's just going to be the two of us up there with uh, a friend of ours is, is being the officiant. And then just about 20, you know, family and friends are going to be standing on the beach with us. And uh, we hired a, a violin player and a guitar player to learn a few songs for us. So we're going to have some live music. That'll be fun. But a lot to do between now and then. Like I gotta get a suit. I don't have. We don't have food figured out. Wait, wait. Violin uh, and guitar. Yeah. It, it, it's at it's the same time. Right yeah, yeah. It's actually pretty cool. Yeah. I'd look forward to yeah, hearing. They, they're learning. Yeah, yeah. They're learning um, as a star song right now. I don't know if you guys remember them from the '90s. Um, but it, it's it's pretty impressive actually. I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. But yeah. So we're just in like just balls to the wall wedding mode and we've got a bunch of family that are going to stay at our house so uh trying to get the house somewhat whipped into shape here so no sleep for mike for a while i think that's always the worst and i still don't have right? a, when the, the family yeah. like you're having a bunch of people at your house and you're like oh my god we got to do all this shit around the house that we would never do and we're not going to do until they come back yeah. oh the, the pressure is intense i mean it's like oh you still have areas of the house that aren't even finished right <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah no we it's a it's a three bathroom house with one functioning bathroom so <laughs> I, I, I i hired a contractor to to finish out our master bathroom so at least we have two when they get here but he he's he's working away in there on the tile work right now and, I, and i've learned that i'm better at tile than i thought i was because i'm not i'm not stoked at what's happening in my bathroom but at this point i don't even care as long as the toilet flushes and somebody can take a shower that's all i care about so it's it's awesome. He's gonna hear you talk about his work in the next room, and then he's gonna leave you a surprise in there. <laughs> I hope not. There's nothing. There's nothing to leave a surprise in. There's a hole in the floor for a time. There you go. It's a it's a third world country in there. That sounds exciting, man. I, I feel for you. I re- I remember those mm. days. It's fantastic. What about you? What's happening in your life? My kids are going back to school this week. My wife is also going back to work this week. So that in and of itself is is stressful, trying to get all that (laughs) stuff sorted. We've been kind of lax in the mornings of summer where you could just kind of 
lay around and not do shit for an hour or so or two hours after you wake up. But now it's full pressure on to get everybody dressed out the door by seven o'clock. So we'll see how it goes out. Our middle daughter is starting pre-K and she is the favorite at the babysitter. So she gets away with freaking everything. And I'm not sure how that's going to play in preschool. So I fully expect to drop her off 30 minutes later, get a call that she is either like laid out some other kid or stolen something or who knows what. Yeah. Try to stab somebody with a pencil. Who knows? All bets are off. <laughs> She's very emotional. I, I don't know. I don't know how you do it, but like the metal that you deserve is is large and golden. More power to you, man. It's 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 not like my wife really likes the Real Housewives like reality drama shows, but I'm I'm always telling her like just turn the TV off and just sit just sit in the living room and just feel it like it's that's our life like those let's take all those housewives shows shrink the people down to four <laughs> nine-year-old like a nine-year-old a four-year-old and a two-year-old and just watch them go at each other it's all day <laughs> you deserve a medal thank you yeah. thank you that's all I got. Like it stresses me out just hearing about. It. <laughs> all right. Uh, so, what are we diving into today, guys? What's the topic? Well, we have three actually. Uh, we're going to do three more questions from some of our our listeners and, and see what kind of answers we can come up with on the spot for them. Peter, what's question number one? What's behind door number one? <laughs> Cue Vanna White music. When should I invest in my shop? That is a question that deserves a lot of different types of answers. I have several. So before I get into it, what do you guys think of that question? Well, what, are, what type of investment, I guess, is, is my question. That's a, yeah, that's I'm a good assuming point. That it, I'm assuming it means something like, when should I? When do I know when I should pull the trigger on a new piece of equipment, like a new printer I've had my eye on, or a new, you know, bucket truck or service truck or something like that? I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's what this question means. Um, and so, yeah, that's a tough question. Anybody who's owned a sign shop for more than a month has probably struggled with this question: Should I buy this machine right now, or should I wait a little bit longer? Should I continue to outsource? And probably anybody who's owned a shop for longer than a month has also made the, this mistake of buying a machine when they probably shouldn't have or were invested in the wrong place in their business when they shouldn't have. I know I did uh, several times. I've got quite a few nightmare stories about machines I bought when I shouldn't have bought them just because I felt like I needed to. Um, not sure what the psychological driver there is that makes us like want to have the biggest, shiniest new toys on the block if it's just a keeping up with the Joneses type of thing or you know, or what. Ego. We go back to the ego we talk about a lot got to have the biggest printer but you know <laughs> somebody jump in and help me out <laughs> the printer measuring contest <laughs> how big's your printer if you cut your teeth in this industry on the science 101 forum that's that is a real discussion that happens on there on a regular basis. Well, okay, so if the t if the question is framed in such a light where it's specifically talking about the new shiny equipment or or new shiny truck or service vehicle, and the question is is when should you? I think the the simple answer there's there's a simple answer and there's a long winded answer. For those of you that are not looking to listen to the entirety of this conversation, you just want a quick answer. The, the simple answer is. Your business will tell you when it's appropriate to invest in this market. Now, whether or not you choose to listen, that's another part of that conversation. But in other words, if you see yourself doing a ton of wide format printing and you do not own a wide format printer, you should buy one because the markups and percentages are going to pay dividends for you in the short term and long term. 
My first year in business, I did not own a wide format printer. It was not. It was not a necessity. It was more of a a, a want than a need. So I actually survived my first eighteen months just outsourcing all my digital prints and receiving them back in twenty four hours and providing that level of service and that level of attentiveness to my customers. The thing that bothered me most about outsourcing was at the end of the year when I saw how much I sent this company and then how it translated to the cost of a entry-level Roland wide format 54-inch printer. It seemed comparable in cost. So if I can incur those costs, grow my business 20% the second year, and also now I'm paying down the note, which will eventually be an asset for the company, that makes all the sense in the world to do to add that asset to your to your balance sheet. And that's a simple that's a simple answer in the wide format world. But let's assume now for a moment that your shop has multiple printers and now you're wondering when should you invest in a flatbed printer? I don't think that the answer differs. What do you guys think? I'll, I'll kind of push that over to you guys. But what if you have three roll-to-roll printers, maybe a couple of HP latex machines, and you want to get into flatbed printing, what is the logic there? What would you do in that example? Does the answer stay consistent that your business will tell you? Or is it more like I just went from one lease and now I want that new shiny object because it's cool, it's exciting, and I can make money with it. I think for me, like at my shop, the deciding factor was how much we were we were printing on the vinyl and then mounting onto substrates when we bought a flatbed printer. Once, once I got pretty close to that threshold where I was spending as much in you know just white print vinyl as I I would have on uh, you know a lease payment on a flatbed uh, that's when i started doing the hard math on it to see if it was you know justifiable or not and, and in my mind if i could replace that print vinyl with you know direct printing that was a justifiable expense now the reality was it actually wasn't there's was a lot more that went into that than that yeah one of the things that actually caught me off guard that that i i didn't consider didn't think about i thought okay this is great we're gonna we're gonna take this manual this labor-intensive process of printing into vinyl laminating it and then running that through the laminator again to mount it to the substrate or if you have a roller table or something think okay we can we can replace all that labor plus that material with a flatbed just print directly to the substrate so in my mind it was a labor savings in addition to a material savings but the reality is is the larger the piece of machinery you have like a flatbed the more maintenance there is into it the more it costs you to run just in general and it's actually not really much of a labor savings because the it produces things so much faster than the old way that you you need more manpower running it than than you did doing it the the old fashioned way before. So the math is a little more expansive than for me anyway than just hey I'm I'm spending X on materials that I can replace with a machine that does the same thing. And uh, that was a that was a tough lesson to learn. So let me kind of come back to that for a moment, and I'll, I'll ask this question to Bryant here because I think from an analytical perspective, if you're able to save and compute the savings in time, so if buying this nice shiny toy can save you two hours a day, an hour a day, and you are able to do that math and compute what this actual monthly savings will be, does that factor into your decision when making an investment? Is it my turn? Yeah, this, this was directed to you. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I think all too often we make these purchases like emotionally, and then we try to justify it. And hearkening back to the old days, like we were always looking to add to our capability. I can't tell you like how many times we said that whenever we were justifying like a big expense. To a a certain degree, you always come back to run the numbers and, and things like that. But there's something deep down in 
in there. This is, hey, I, I think if we buy this piece of equipment, we're going to be in a better position. But looking at it from the, the math perspective, as you mentioned, if I can justify that time savings, if I've got the volume of work to keep that thing running, if it's going to come out net positive for me, you know, yeah, that's you're going to factor into my decision. I'm probably going to, to purchase that piece of equipment. If if I run the numbers and I have those checked by my accountant and he thinks that's uh, that they check out, why wouldn't I buy it? Okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw a wrench in this question here. Either one of you can take this question here and answer it however you'd like. But let's now say you so you have your wide format printing shop and you guys are doing really great flatbed printing, roll to roll printing. Everything is working out, and now it's time that you think you want to invest into a Colex printer, a Colex machine, or a CNC machine, or a laser, or any other kind of piece of equipment like that. But you, the shop owner, or don't have the time to learn how to use it. Would you then invest in that and look at the time commitment to learning a new machine? To, to be honest with you, this this may be a little bit off topic, but but in my opinion, honestly, like I don't think you should even consider buying a flatbed printer unless you're buying a a cutter to go along with it. Uh, they, they're kind of they're kind of like one's an extension of the other. You can definitely get away with just having a flatbed, but I mean, you, the second you get a flatbed and you can start printing on anything you're going to want to start contour cutting that and cutting it to shape and router cutting things. And I mean, the flatbed opens the door for a lot of, um, a lot of types of work that you're not currently, you may not be currently doing, or maybe it's work that you're currently doing, but you just aren't doing much of it because you can't do it in house. But once you have a bed sitting on the floor, you need to keep it busy and, and you need to expand it in new markets to keep it running. Unless you're just like a, you know, a print, you know, print by the pound type shop that's just cranking out coroplast all day long. But even then, like having a flatbed cutter is is critical to, you know, volume production, even if you're just making straight line cuts. So I kind of feel like that's, that's, that's sort of like one of the traps to it too, that I fell into was not really thinking about the finishing end of, of it, speaking specifically about a flatbed. And, you know, that, that's definitely a factor that needs to be considered is you, you really, you need to spend another hundred grand on a flatbed cutter to, to truly have a, you know, the the ability to produce the kind of work that comes along with with a flatbed printer. To your more specific question, I think it's one of those things where that's a lot harder to outsource, especially if you've got a flatbed printer, but you don't have a cutter in house. Like it, that's that's a it's difficult to outsource. That's not like outsourcing a printed wrap or printed flatbed printing from somebody else entirely. Like you, there's a lot of you know, software file communication back and forth between the print file and your rip, printing it on the, the flatbed, and then whoever's cutting it for you. And then you've got the logistics of getting a sheet to somebody else to cut it. So when you need one, you need one, and you need to pull the trigger on it. And it should probably, that should factor into the math you do up front and buying the flatbed printer alone. And then investing in the training in it is just, like, how do you buy a machine no matter what it is without training if you can't invest the time or money in training then you, sh- you don't have any business buying the machine either right yeah that, that that's got to be the short and sweet answer if you're not if you're an operator and you're involved in your business and you're spending 40 50 60 hours a week in your business whether it be a week or two weeks or testing it out whatever it is an hour a day two hours a day to try it out and and learn this machine I don't suggest buying it. I think the he- take the headache out and just continue to outsource to whomever vendor that is for that particular piece of equipment. That's my take. Right. If you're if you're dropping a quarter million dollars on a a flatbed and a and a Zoomed or something or a Colex, <laughs> like you you probably as the owner you're not going to be the one running it anyway. I'm, I'm assuming at that point. I'm hoping as an owner you've got. A staff that you're going to entrust with with running that, but but either way, yeah. If you if you if you can't make time to learn how to run your quarter million dollar machine, then why are you buying it in the first place? Like that, and I've and I've met people that that do that, and it boggles my mind. Did you not think it through? 
No, it's a good point. Good point. Let me take this question here of investing into your shop and kind of break it down into, we talked about equipment and I think we're all set and squared away on how and when you should do that. But what about the other elements of investing in your shop? What about, Brian, I'll ask you like about people. Let's talk about, let's talk about people like your staff or your <coughs> shop. Like when and how should you invest in your people? <laughs> I Yeah, I think that's probably the bigger question than the equipment, right? How many shops do we talk to, like the owners on a, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, do we talk to that the training model for their people is, hey, watch me do this for a day or two days and then figure out the rest of it? That's, that's every one of the shop owners that we talk to is we just throw people to the fire. So first and foremost, like you've got to invest it's really the biggest factor is time into people like you know if, if you're hiring somebody and, and you don't plan on them being around for at least six months or a year or two years or three years why even bother because you're going to invest or you need to invest depending on the job whether it's like production or, or a sales rep or whatever that role is that you're hiring for you're going to invest a significant amount of time into that person getting them the experience and teaching them the knowledge that they need to be successful in this industry. You know, we always talk about the the details of this industry. Like you, you gotta have you gotta have somebody that's detail oriented or they're just gonna end up costing you more money than they're actually making you. But you know, the other side of that is investing in like extra training. Uh, you know, like sending them if you guys are doing vehicle graphics, send them to different rap schools and do that continually as techniques change over the years. So different materials come out, you gotta stay up to date on that training. You know, I can remember when we first started doing vehicle wraps in the old shop, we, we did a week long training at a facility. And then that was kind of the end of training for us. Like we, we never went back the next year. We would obviously go to trade shows and audit some classes. So, you know, don't hire anybody unless you're willing to invest the time to get them trained up properly. Um, and also external training or, or these rap schools or even video training courses. Like I think also one for raps, maybe rap Institute. I think one of the guys in the group mentioned that one. That's a good resource. Yeah, you made a good point there about to don't hire somebody unless you're prepared to train them. And I, 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 I think to expand on that too, I, I think um, don't don't mistake hiring more staff as a solution for just not training your existing staff. I, I think that that's a, a trap that a lot of us, you know, can easily fall into too. If things are haywire and going off the rails in your shop. You think, well, we're just not, we don't have enough staff. We're too busy to, for for our staff. When maybe your your current staff just needs to be trained better to understand the job better. In addition to all the other systems and processes you need to put in place. I mean, it's just part of the one component of the bigger picture. But you know, just just hiring to to, to plug that that hole in the dam isn't isn't the smartest thing you can do if your training program isn't on on point and the rest of your staff isn't you know well trained and up to speed on everything. Yeah, it's, it's easy as an owner to play like whack-a-mole or like you're in a boat, right? And that one hole is leaking and then you're plugging that hole and another one pops up and you move on. And before you know it, like you, you've got all these holes that you never properly fixed that you just kind of plugged and it comes, yeah. it comes back to bite you in the ass big time. Right, right, yeah. No, I, I think the training is is one of the most essential investments that you have to make if you want to have a successful business and especially if you want to grow you just can't grow without a well-trained staff and in a, a good training program because growth requires you know you to hire more people and you can't hire more people unless you have the ability to train them well to do their job and be successful at their job otherwise you're constantly going to be spinning your wheels no matter how many people you have yeah i'm gonna MC this one like peter would we definitely talk to a lot of owners that are like in this chicken and the egg problem. Hey, I've got, I've got more work than our team can handle right now, but I don't have a, a really good training program in place to where I could, if I hire somebody right now, 
that I feel like we're going to do a great job of, of training them? Like, what would you say to those guys in that position? Let's just assume we definitely need a body, but we don't have all the SOPs or processes or a, a formal, like, wicked awesome training program in place. <laughs> I mean, that's... I think that's a spot where a lot of shop owners inevitably find themselves. And I know I found myself there quite a few times. Like I, I don't have anything in place and I need to hire, but I don't have the infrastructure in place to be able to hire these people effectively and put them to work successfully. Um, I don't know. I don't really, I mean, you got to start somewhere if you're desperate for help and you need to get people in, you know, on the floor or producing signs. I, I, on one hand, I suppose having some help in there, even if they're not the best trained, is is better than not having enough help and, and just being desperately far behind. But that's it, definitely a rock and hard place to find yourself between. And there, I don't know that there really is a good answer other than just roll up your sleeves and, and knuckle under and work like hell to get those processes and systems in place and a training program in place as quick as you can and wing it until you do, I guess. <laughs> wing it. Peter, what's your take on it, man? You're clicking the the scroll wheel. <laughs> He's playing Angry Birds or something. No, 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 not at all. Um, you know, it's it's for me. There, I, I have I have something that I want to say about investing in people first, and just to kind of come back to yes, I believe that training is important, and where you can get that training. And how you can get that training, that I mean, that's going to depend on what training they're needed and if it even exists that you can get it. Otherwise, you have to put that time in yourself and invest that time into training your own staff from your own knowledge, from your own prior mistakes, but your own SOPs. You must put the time into investing into what that looks like. And if you don't, well, then the simple answer for me is you might want to get in touch with one of us and we might be able to help you with that plug 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 okay but the but just to come back to investing in people you guys took it in a very good way but good positive and and constructive way when it comes to investing in training but what about what about another type of investment and that's just like investing into your your team's personal lives like they're and championing their personal goals it's something that I've bought into not not too long ago when it comes to my partner in the shop and our staff here. There's a lot that our employees go through in their personal lives and we have to be human and we also have to be business owners. So, you know, going I went I've recently gone to my employees. He's in a band, so he's I supported his band and, and was there on the front of the line while he's playing his lead guitar and supporting him. And showing him that level of support because they are human and they have other goals and ambitions outside of work. So I felt that that really that type of encouragement, that type of support really does pay dividends in your shop because they'll go to bat for you if you show a little bit of support for them. And, and in other examples, I have another employee who makes t-shirts on the side. He has a little like tent and goes to these art festivals and, and, and chamber of commerce meetings and networking festivals and things like that. And, and he's got, he's got a nice little booth set up and I helped him make that an efficient model for him so he can make good money and while spending time on the weekends and doing, getting out in, in the community. So, you know, I feel like if you, if you put that type of a time investment into your staff, they'll show up for work at free, on, with you on Monday morning, ready to go and ready to tackle <coughs> tackle whatever comes. I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, it's all about mm -hmm. investing in the relationship with your team. I know we've I've talked about that before. Yeah, I'm a big big proponent of one on ones with all of your direct reports. You know, if you've got a shop of twenty employees and you're the owner, it's certainly hard to do one-on-ones with everybody on a regular basis. But if you've got that split into departments, I, I firmly believe that your department managers or your leads in each department should be meeting one-on-one -on -one with the team members that are underneath them that report directly to them on a regular basis. Because there's there's really no other way to to form those relationships. you got to support those relationships and you know have a 
20 minutes or 30 minutes set aside every week for for those team members just to to chat about whatever's on their mind that given week and then take half the time to talk about work and what's coming up in the future and get to really understand what those goals are what their lives are like outside of because that's yeah communication and just managing a, a team effectively getting everybody to work together is all about those relationships and you know if everybody is on good terms with everybody and the relationships are there if things are stressful you could push through that without mistakes or without somebody burning out or like you said people are going to show up for you when it counts uh, because you've invested into them and into that relationship and and i think it needs to be said as well that one of the one of the most important or, or best investments you can make in your staff is to just pay them well <laughs> yeah yeah we're overlooking the obvious yes <laughs> right i mean it, right it, like it sounds so obvious it's stupid but I, as business owners i mean we walk a fine line between making money for ourselves and and making money for the the stakeholders in the business and and keeping employees happy but I was listening to something on NPR yesterday about this this topic, actually. Um, the majority of anybody's stress, and anybody who's not independently wealthy anyway, most life stress comes from money and not having enough of it and having too many bills to pay. And as, as business owners, I mean, we, we, we have a responsibility to spread abundance however we can, and that, that does mean paying a real fair living wage. And there's obviously a really you know there's a hot debate right now about nobody wants to work and minimum wage shouldn't be fifteen dollars an hour and blah 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 but you know inflation is out of control it costs a fortune to just live paying employees as much as you can afford to pay them for a job well done goes a long way towards ensuring that those employees are happy outside of work which means they'll be happier at work as well at the end of the day they don't they're there for a paycheck and nothing else just like you, you own the business to make money, they work at the business to make money. So it's easy to lose sight of that and try and sweeten the pot with pizza parties and beer at work and a cool <laughs> pool table and stuff like that. But you guys had a pool uh, table. Pay the bills. Damn. Yeah, I didn't have a pool table, but Michael yeah. Riley for the win. For the win. That's a great answer. And I, I, I hey, look, if you can afford to put a pool table. In, or a pinball machine in your shop, more power to you. Invest in that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean that that all matters. I mean, definitely creating like a a positive environment that people don't dread getting up in the morning and coming to work to is is important for sure. Because nobody wants to go to a you know sit in a cubicle and stare at a concrete block wall all day long. Like that sucks. So you know, I mean, that stuff's all a given. You got to create a, a happy, welcoming environment that people aren't miserable in. But but don't think. And I think this is like rampant in the tech industry, especially. I mean, you hear about it. If anybody watches like Silicon Valley or something, you, you know what I mean. Like all these, uh, all that stuff is great. Like it's cool we have a kombucha tap at work, but <laughs> again, it doesn't pay the bills. And that stuff isn't a substitute for for good pay. Yeah, or, or the expectation that you're going to work sixty hours a week to get all those perks of, <laughs> in, in lieu of right. something else. Yeah, and, and that I don't think that's as bad in the sign industry, although I'm sure it could be a little bit. But yeah, in, in the tech industry, it's like we we own you, we gave you a pool table, and now you you work for us for eternity. Of course, the tech industry pays better than the sign industry too, so <laughs> there is that. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, you pay your employees well, what you can afford to pay them, and if times are tough, that's where, like Peter mentioned, in, investing in their lives and, and you know have that relationship with them and, and just level and say hey like times are tough I, I can't necessarily get you what you should be getting paid right now but as soon as things turn around we're going to take care of you and follow through on that and then actually follow through on that yeah unlike some people <laughs> that feels a little pointed <laughs> nah not at all <laughs> <laughs> all right so we won't we won't dive any deeper into that rabbit hole but uh, what's uh, what's are we done with this question or do do we have more to to spill on what's that feels what, like a great spot to move on to me 
I think we beat this question to death. I love this next question. I think it it speaks to how direct of a problem this is, and I think that we've all been here in one maybe one one too many times we've been here. What's the best way to handle a client that is unhappy with their finished wrap, even when it matches the proof that they approved? prior to printing i've been here so that, that, oh man what this is hey, like. that brings back yeah just i started sweating yeah just that uncomfortable feeling of like <laughs> uh, like what do you do here i don't i i personally think this is a really easy one to answer i mean i think there's two right answers and that's it if if you screwed it up if it's not right if it doesn't match the proof that sucks but just redo it you got to redo it you got to make it right for your customer if it matches the proof they signed off on and there's nothing wrong with it, I mean, like, that's why you have them sign off on the proof. I mean, if you're not going to hold them to that, why bother with the proofing process at all? Just slap something on their vehicle and surprise them with it. Like, I, I don't I don't really see any other, I don't see any other way to answer that. Either you messed up and you redo it or you didn't mess up and you don't redo it. And if the customer's not happy with that, that's not your fault. I mean, you can't win them all, and you can't make everybody happy, and the customer isn't always right. I, so I, I like that the surprise wrap. Maybe hey, you want it for cheaper? <laughs> like, well, hey, look, this is going to be forty five hundred dollars to wrap this, but but we've got a cheaper option for you for twenty <laughs> for twenty two hundred dollars. You could get the surprise wrap, and boy, let me tell you what. It's, You're gonna like it's for it. this other company that didn't show up to the vehicle <laughs> last week. You don't mind driving around in a lawnmower uh, van, do you? <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna fight you on that answer, though, man. Hey, Bring it. I, and this may stem from my like customer success days, I guess, of like making sure everything is copacetic for everybody. But it, it's a shitty situation either way, whether they. Whether you goofed or they approve the proof and it's still wrong, let's let's assume it's wrong, right? Instead of it says unhappy, so I, I guess it's yeah. you kind of have to qualify well, yeah, what is unhappy. We need yeah, we need to qualify what actually happened here. Is it did do they just did they is everything a hundred percent for the proof? But they just after they see it full size on the vehicle, they're like nah, I don't like it, or or did they like? miss their phone number being wrong on the proof and they signed off on it and then they realize it after the fact like, those are two totally different scenarios i'll even I mean, go a step further what if what if it what if some of the graphics like fall on some of the body lines that make it hard to read like a hinge or it kind of bleeds off into a sliding rail on a van and you, oh, that, letters get fault. cut off that's totally that's totally your well, fault that's that, not the customer's you see, fault you see that, that yeah the customer can't be responsible for those no matter what the proof says or right. what the proof looks like if you if you did that as a sign shop and like things fall on odd contours and body lines and hinges and it just kind of skews everything you screwed up you effed right. up you it's did. on and you to fix that no matter right. what the customer signed up on right and you need a better designer yeah. all right so the assumption yeah. is this is not there's nothing wrong with it it's to spec. It's just the customer picks out something that they don't like about it after the fact. But it's signed off on, and it matches the proof 100%. And the sign shop has, did not screw up at all, right? All right. Is that That's a scenario? Okay. Okay, right. yeah. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's a, that's a, a lot tougher to give, like, a here's, like, the answer for because it's such a, a gray situation. So the first thing I'm going to look at is probably who is the customer. Are they a good account? Are they a loyal customer? What's what? Where are they coming from? Okay, is it is this guy spending a hundred grand with me a year or two hundred thousand dollars with me a year? If so, if they're a key customer, more than likely, I'm just going to do what it takes to make them happy. Like I, I've got a business to look after. Let's get it done. If it's kind of a, let's say it's like a not great customer, not a super repeat customer, and I, I don't know. This could be the last job we ever do for them. I don't want to take the hit, right? If I don't have to. So the first thing I would do is, is address it with the customer. Hey, tell me exactly what you don't like about this. What's what's wrong with it? Did we not give you the result that you were looking for? Uh, try to get to the, the root of 
what they're unhappy with. A lot of times, like the customer may complain about something like, ah, oh, hey, like the, the color is not right or like that, that, that right there, that right there is the common issue. If I'm reading this question and the customer is unhappy, you can't be unhappy with a misspelling. And if, like I said, if the, if the words are placed in places that are wrong, like that's your fault, you should fix that. But often it's the color, like it doesn't match what they saw on their screen or what was printed out. And then when you print it out, like Mike said, to scale, it just doesn't look the same. And that to me has happened to me before. I've had to redo an entire wrap because we skipped the step, right? We skipped with that like one tenth of a scale print for the customer to sign off on would look like. Right, so same material, same printer, same laminate. This is what it's going to come out, and we skip that step, and now the customer's like, "Well, you know, the color looks more vibrant on my screen, but when you print it out on this matte stock paper as a proof for me to sign off on, it doesn't match the the color scheme that I was looking for. I was looking for something more like this, or so I feel like that's going to be like when I read this, that my mind went to to color, <laughs> like the color, right? Yeah, gotcha. Yeah. yeah and, I'll, and I'll go back and say that's that, that's still your fault. Yeah. Agreed. I still mean, your I, fault. Yes. Yeah. In my opinion, if you're doing wraps or anything that's color critical like that, and you're not having the customer sign off on an actual proof on the material laminated with the laminate that it'll be if, off of the printer, it'll be printed on. If they're a picky you're customer. You're doing the wrong job. Yeah. Right. I mean, you should do it on everything. I mean, you should have sign-offs on the actual media laminate combination profile you're going to use. Yeah. And that should be safe Agreed. for the future as well. So if they come back and they get a third van and fifth van and ninth van and yeah. over the years, you can reference that back. And if, if you have a misprint, if it doesn't match that, it's on, your, it's on you. Like you, yeah. you, know, you screwed up. But no, I, I mean, I, I'm definitely with you on the, you got to suss out the client and, and you know, you do have to make a decision. I totally agree with you on that, Brian. Like if it's a good client and then you, sometimes you just got to swallow your pride and do what you got to do. But I, I, I would. I always like in, any client who is a good client who spends a lot of money with you. They know how you work. They know they're used to your quality. I mean, the chances of this happening with a good client are are slim. Realistically slim. Yeah, right. Like it's just it's probably not going to happen. And usually when this does happen, it's because it's a a poor fit customer who's just trying to weasel out of paying either all of their bill or trying to get a discount after the fact and that's you know, we've all had those customers too and that's why I oh say, we have like, had that absolutely yeah absolutely. that's why i say if their complaint is legitimate you gotta you gotta do what you gotta do but i, I mean it, 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 do you, i say do, when i do you try to resolve the situation at all or let's say okay i've I know i've got a sneaking suspicion this client is just angling for a discount do i just tell them to get fucked and like go on or like how do you handle it i i think it may depend on the way they approach it with me as well if this person is going to get on social media and blow me up and get on google reviews and just like try and just smear me all over town it, it, then i can avoid that for giving them 100 bucks off and and sidestep that issue just just for the hassle of it it may be worth that but even then like i'm not going to do it very very right. happily and he's going to know that i I, I think that there's a lot of people that just will try to take advantage of every small business owner they can get their hands on. I mean, there are, there are people that are like that out there, and they, they tend to come to sign shops, I think, on a, on a fairly regular basis. I think you got to stick to your guns. I mean, I, that, if all things being equal, if your processes are in place, if your, your proofing process is locked down, you delivered exactly what you told them you were going to deliver and what they signed off on, and there's there's no question about the quality, I, I, I don't think you're out I don't think you're crazy for sticking to your guns and saying, no, I'm sorry. You're, you're, I'm not going to work with you on this because we did a good job. We gave you exactly what you asked for, what you approved. And, and you know, that's, that's the end of this transaction. That's how it works. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like too many people aren't willing to stick to their guns like that in the cave. And that's how, that's how you lose money. That's how you end up being you know, a floor mat for people. So the, the, the final thought on this question is I, I, I'd go on to say that 95%, if the customer is unhappy, it's, it's something that you need to correct. Unless you feel it's they're unhappy and they're trying to bring you down on price. Right, right. 
Totally. So I, I, in that case, if it's color, you got to fix it. If it's a misspelling, suck it up. You're gonna and chalk it off as the price of doing business. But everything that comes down to the task, if you screwed up on the color, it's bec- and you didn't follow your process. That's got to be the reason why you're going to redo it for the customer and make it right for the customer. Mm -hmm. Even if it means replacing the entirety of that wrap. But I'm going to throw a monkey wrench here. I like throwing these monkey wrenches in because these scenarios do happen. So I'm going to just, I'm going to be very direct. Mike, I'm asking you this question, Mr. Cut and dry black and white. What happens when some of the photos that were customer supplied come out fuzzy, grainy, and not high quality. Is it then the operator's fault? Yeah. Ah! It, 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 yeah, no, totally. I mean... It, uh, Must have these photos. This is my best job I've ever done on this concrete patio or power washing <laughs> this roof. I want to showcase the shit out of it. But you're telling me that if they give me the only photo in existence and it's low quality and I tell them it's going to look shitty... Yes. And I still put it on a truck, and they are not happy. It's still my fault. Joe from Joe's Roofing doesn't understand camera resolution and printer resolution and how all that stuff works at all. You're the professional in this situation, so you you have a, an obligation to the client. If he gives you crappy photos, you have an obligation to say to this customer, listen, the, the resolution on these photos is, is way too low, and I, I'll happily use them, but they're going to look like shit when I print them full size on your van or your truck or whatever. And as part of that proofing process, I mentioned you need to print out a full size, 100% crop of that and show them and and say, this is what it looks like. And if you're okay with that, you need to sign off on it and you need to get it in writing that they, you know, you made this clear to them. If you just take their shitty low res Nokia cell phone picture from, (laughs) and you know, that, that's 640 pixels wide and blow it up to the size of a, a box truck and slap it on there and you don't make that clear to them, then you suck at your job and you shouldn't be doing raps. I mean, that just full stop. Like that, that, This industry is full of people who don't approach it from that professional perspective. But there, there's like a baseline level of quality that we all have to deliver. And, and, part of, and that's just part of it. I mean, if, if you're going to be a in the roofing industry, like you gotta, you gotta know the limitations of the materials and products you're working with and what they can and cannot do. And if you use materials and products outside of what they're designed to do and your customer's roof fails, if that customer asks you to use that material in, in, a, in an inappropriate way, that's not the customer's fault. Like you owe it to that customer to say, I can't do that that way because that's not how it works and your roof is going to fail and your house is going to flood. The same for us. Like you can't, you just can't let the customer drive the conversation or, or the process to that level. You, as a professional, have to tell them that their idea won't work, their photographs are too low resolution or whatever, and and prevent these things from getting to the point where the thing is printed and on the van, and then the customer is unhappy. Yeah. So uh, if you're printing out pixelated photos, you suck at your job. unless the customer approved it and they signed off and then you've got it in writing and it's an ironclad contract (laughs) right yeah i I, i've always taken the approach of like ownership if there's something wrong like if this customer is unhappy with the color let's say we're talking about then there's some we've done something wrong or we haven't communicated well what you do after that like how you resolve it with that customer we could kind of give you some advice but that's on you that's your call to make as a business owner there's not there's not a you could tell them to go get fucked or go ahead and leave a bad review or okay i'm not gonna give you any discount or and there's there's better ways to handle it than just say go get fucked yeah i want to i want to like clarify like that's not I, I know i'm fairly blunt and crusty at times but like that's not what i'm saying like just punch the customer in the nose and tell them to go play in traffic i don't i don't mean that but i, I just mean you got to stick to your guns and and if you didn't do anything wrong and and you've upheld your end of the contract you have every, you're well within your rights to say that to the customer and, and hold them to their end of the contract is, is all. But I, I totally agree. Like I, we're, we're in an industry where doing it right, putting out good quality isn't 
isn't a selling point or a feature. It's just the baseline expectation. So if you don't do a good job, if you don't produce a good quality product, if you don't deliver on just the the basics like that, getting the color correct, getting the resolution right, that kind of stuff, I mean, that's that's your fault, and, you, and you've got to always make that right 100% of the time. You can't ever put that back on the customer. I mean, that's just terrible. All right, so here's Pete's final thought. If you're a wrap shop and a customer gives you pixelated photos and they absolutely want them on their vehicle or truck or whatever, wall wrap, and it's pixelated, go check out Topaz Labs Gigapixels AI tool. That's a free tool, free advice. You should be using it because the results are unbelievable. It's They're so good, it's hard to believe it's actually real. So go check it out, Topaz Labs. I'll leave a link in this, this description here on our YouTube channel for you guys to check it out. Yeah, that is a I've been a using cool it for years. Yeah. Shout out to Robert Biggio for introducing me that many, many years ago. Saved me on a couple of customers, so it'll hopefully save you. Brian, take us to the final and third question here. Dun, 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 dun. This is a good one, man. I know you like this one. What should my material markups be? What, what, am, what am I marking up my material? Hmm. Great question. We actually just had this call not too long ago on our weekly mastermind calls. So, Which you can topic, join, by the way. This topic did come up, and we did get some really good answers from the group on what shops are doing across the country. And the major, the major takeaway here for me when it comes to this question, this will be a two-part answer, is that it seems as though shops are going away from marking up percentages. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Marking, marking up their materials to match a price of a square foot, which is, believe it or not, how I started in this business. And thanks to people like Mike and, and Brian and you and, and some of our other members of our mastermind here, our shop no longer does that where I'll even use a very simple a simple example here of just printing on a 13-ounce banner hemmed in grommeted. My shop used to just come straight out and say, that's $7 a square foot. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what's written on it. Doesn't matter what else, what size it is. It's $7 a square foot. And at a certain square footage, there would be like a, a, like a, a volume discount, a range discount, uh, whatever. Let me ask you, um, like, why would you do the discount? Uh, if somebody's ordering eight, ten foot banners, I feel like they're that's warranted some sort of quantity or range discount. Yeah. What that actually is, well, that's for my shop to know I and did, yours to figure out. Yeah, I, I, no, I've just always like wondered that. Okay, why do we feel like the need to wear these? I understand like giving them a better price if they're ordering more, but like, how are you determining like? where these breaks are and, and they, you know, like when does this discount kick in this mythical discount and like, how do you set that up? But I know that's a little off. I've never met anybody who can actually explain that math to me. <laughs> and that's, I used to price that way as well. I think it's like you call the sign shop down the street and Hey, how, you know, what are your prices on things and where's your quantity break? And then you just adjust yours accordingly. But it's a, it's an attempt to compensate for, scale economy of scale manufacturing where you're obviously you're, you you have less labor per piece when you're manufacturing multiple of something than you do when you're making one so we all you know like, like our gut tells us the more of something i make the less the more efficient it is to make that thing and therefore i can sell each one a little bit cheaper per piece the more they buy but but, but if you're just charging nobody knows what if you're saying yeah. okay it's Peter gave the example, seven bucks a square foot. We sell this particular vinyl printed and laminated or a banner, I think he gave. We sell this banner at seven bucks a square foot, right? How do you come up with the, the discounts and where the bricks are? Like you just, there's just no... Like, it's and it's, it, how, do you know, how do you know that that's going to make you money? Like are you just given the number? Like, uh, like hey... 
it's seven bucks a square foot, but we got to give them a two dollar a square foot break if they order a hundred square feet of this. That's what I'm saying. You, you can't you can't determine that. There's no way to determine that unless you go through and do the math on every single quantity to figure out how much labor it's going to take to make ten of these. How much will it take to make twenty five? How much time will it be on the printer for this? And but yeah, we still do it. I, I mean, That's yeah, we still do it because it's easy and convenient. <laughs> also i i find it that the it's actually done in reverse like if if i can install if i find out a lot of people are ordering one banners or threes well if i can get them to four there's a discount on four it could be used as an upselling ploy as well which is actually how it started in my shop you know what figuring out what those volume discounts are not just on that banners are a little difficult but it, lawn signs or and often lawn signs the, the the break can also be done if you're outsourcing them with what the vendor gives you as far as a price break goes so that's a little bit easier to figure out but you're right there is no right or wrong formula you have to know what it costs you to produce X amount in volume in order to, to figure in order to figure out how much margin you're willing to discount for your customers. But that's a whole different topic. In order, going back to what I was saying, if if seven dollars of square foot is what I'm charging on banner, then that means on banner material, if my ink cost remains the same and my machine cost stays the same, and I'm only printing on banner, then the only thing I can increase the margin on is the material. So sometimes that might actually not be five times that might be like five and a half times because why because when you factor in the cost of that ink at a certain value it has to add an equal seven does that make sense like a square if you're breaking down everything to its minute square footage factor your ink per square foot has a cents value let's just call it 25 cents a square foot so if it's 25 cents a square foot that means the only other component has to equal six dollars and 75 cents a square foot so now you need to take your cost of that material and factor in the markup for that that equals that rate so somehow that that's been how i've done it in the past is backwards math which has worked out for me in the past and i know many shops that do it that way but it does appear as if the margins are kind of going towards just a simple math like we're going to increase our roll to roll materials five times and that and whatever it ends up being is what it is that was the biggest takeaways to our mastermind call is that substrates and have the have a certain markup roll to roll vinyls have a certain markup laminates have a certain markup vinyl cut vinyl has a certain markup and what those are well how do you guys want to answer that <laughs> hey, take it, take it away, you guys. Be, <laughs> you should be you should be charging what at least three times on your substrates to cover the cost of screwing up the job. The, the what do you want to say? Yeah, the three X markup is what is like the industry standard that I've I've always heard, and it's it, it's what I ran with at my shop too. I mean, it gives you it covers you on materials once and then materials again in case you totally screw up and have to completely replace everything in it and you still make 100% profit on that material so the 3x is to me is safe and I, I talked about this on the, um, the mastermind call earlier this week too but um, you know 3 to 5x material markup is, is generally what I saw across the board at most smaller shops but the larger the shop the lower those markups are and, and, and interestingly um, you know, shops that are kind of operating in the, the three plus million dollar uh, realm uh, or higher. I mean, I, I s regularly saw markups of, of 1.3 to 1.5. So really, really, really low compared to what, you know, the smaller shops do. But as I said on that, those shops are also fanatical about covering labor and labor is the, the you know, the majority of the cost in, and you know those types of signs. I'm talking larger electrical signs like pylon signs and channel letters and monument signs, things like that. Um, but yeah, I think three X. I mean, if you're a smaller shop and you're you're trying to make sure that you don't just lose your ass on every job, uh, a three X markup I think is a safe starting point for sure. And that as long as you don't screw up twice and have to buy three sheets of material. I've been there. But yeah, and I'll and I'll I'll say if you do that, then probably pricing is not your biggest problem. 
hurdle that you're facing. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a pricing problem at that point. Get a new CNC operator. <laughs> your markup is not your problem. It's hard to fire yourself. That's All right, so three true. three times is so three times is the industry standard on substrates. What's the industry standard on on materials on roll to roll materials? That's a, I, I would say three X markup, and, I, and I'm hesitant to say industry standard because there's, there's there's no standardization in this industry at all. I mean, there's like none at all that ever anywhere, no matter what, on any topic. There's no standardization, but I feel like three X is safe to say is a good place, and that would be on roll materials too. I don't, I know on things like cut vinyl where your cost is. 10 15 20 cents a square foot 3x markup is still you're under a dollar per square foot so you can get away with with more than 3x on those types of materials but to me like i I feel like just make your life easier make everything 3x markup and then cover your labor correctly i I think the answer for me on this one is super long-winded and i'm not going to get into it because it goes back into like how you're actually doing pricing whether i'm like I've got like a cost-based price or I'm more like market pricing of, hey, the market for this particular product is $14 a square foot or $12 a square foot. Let's say, say the going rate for wraps in my area is $12 a square foot, right? That's dramatically different than, hey, I'm, I'm pricing based on the, the labor to produce that wrap, to design that wrap, the materials, the time to actually print and laminate that wrap. So it, to me, it's, it's hard to give like a, a flat number without making some assumptions. Okay, you're, you're actually doing cost-based pricing and you've got your other things figured out because otherwise you, if your markups are great and you're not figuring in your time, like you're still going to be pricing yourself short. Do you think that market-based pricing is is a wise avenue to pursue, or do you think that cost-based pricing is the the better route? I think 100%. You need to know the cost of what you're producing each and every time. Now, like how you how you price that to your customer, I, I'm less concerned about. I would say, even if I'm selling it 12 bucks a square foot. If I don't know what it is, what it actually costs me to produce that job, then I'm, I would be terrified. I don't even know if this is making me any money, but hey, we're doing it in bulk. And if you want, if you come get a hundred square feet from us, we'll drop the price $2 and we'll just, we'll make it up in bulk. So unless you know the costs, I don't think market-based pricing works for me either. (laughs) That was a trick question and you got it right though. That that was what I was hoping you would say is, is what matters is the cost and not necessarily how you arrive at the price. Yeah, and, and, I mean, I, I, we've talked about this on some of the other calls, but like the same product to a different customer has more value and they're willing to pay more for it. So, you know, it, like pricing is both art and science, and it's it's a topic that obviously we all love. You know, obviously, you've spent <laughs> just as many years as I have knee-deep in pricing formulas and spreadsheets and everything else. I know Peter has because I watched him go through and submit the hourly rate calculator 800 times through the... <laughs> <laughs> the deal. Yeah, I, I think that's a really that's a really good point. I mean, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of of market based pricing where you're like you know Jimbo signs down the street charges eight dollars a square foot for banners. Therefore, I'm going to charge seven fifty and be more competitive than him. And that's how I, a lot of I think a lot of especially new people to the industry price is they you know they they don't figure out their true cost. I think your your pricing definitely in most cases has to be in line with what the market will bear. Obviously, I mean that's just kind of like you know business one hundred and one. But yeah, I, I I totally agree with what you said that if you're going to um, pursue the market based pricing, you you have to make sure that your market isn't undercharging for something and, and you're, you're actually making your margins that you need to make on, on something. And I, I, I mean, working at Shopbox, and I would, I would start working with new, new customers on, on pricing and something Brian, you and I talked about a lot was thinking it was amazing. You ask somebody, how do you price a banner? Like they have no idea how, <laughs> how they arrive at that 750 square foot. Right. Except I, I just, I, I called Jimbo signs down the street and that that's the answer you get quite regularly. But they, many, many times I had that conversation with people and then we actually went through and did the math to help them figure out what's your true cost on this product. And it found out they found out they were losing a lot of money 
because they had no idea what the cost was. They were just charging what the market would bear. And I mean, that's, I, I think that gets into a topic for, for another time. What, if you need to charge more than the market will bear, what do you do? Cause that's not a good place to be. And you have other things you need to address then, you know, overhead related, but, um, uh, yeah, I think it's a great price. Like a, a great point. Don't fall into the trap of just charging what everybody else charges to be competitive, unless you know for sure that you're actually making the money you need to make at that rate. Yeah. All right. Let's bookend it. Material markups. Can we all agree? Like at least three per, three times. It's a good starting point. If you're not sure, assuming your factory smaller shop. Yeah. Assuming. Yeah. If you're not sure, that's a good starting point. Yeah. Assuming you're factoring in your time, and everything else, three times. Three times is a good start. Start there yep. and then tweak. All right, guys. What's the three questions? That went better than I expected. Yeah, I thought this was going to be a quick 30-minute one. I'm some, we're over an hour already. This is great. This We actually probably gave a lot more answers than I thought we would. We can't ever keep things short. I mean, it's it's, it's amazing we keep yeah, these you, things in, <laughs> as short as we do. Yeah. If you're if you're coming here for a thirty minute podcast, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> we ain't your guys. We're not your guys. All right, uh, All are right. we like, launching into rapid fire takeaways? Rapid fire takeaways, yes. All right, I'll go first. All right, when when invest in your people. Oh, invest in your people. Stop interrupting me. Investing in your people. <laughs> That is the biggest takeaway of today's episode. For me, invest in your people, invest in your team, invest in your training, invest in your stats, personal lives, champion their wins, celebrate their wins, and get yourself a pinball machine in your shop. Are you going to include the link in the show notes? To the per- to, the, to a pinball yeah, machine? Yeah, the preferred pinball machine. <laughs> We're still looking for a sponsor. I don't have a pen. Yeah. All right. Number two, Mike, what's the best way to handle a client that is unhappy with whatever you produce for them? If you messed up, make it right. If you didn't mess up, make the customer happy, but don't, I don't know. Don't drop your pants either. Stick to your guns. Don't drop your pants. I don't want to see how big. <laughs> I don't want to see how big your printer is. All right. What should my material markups be? If you don't know, you don't know. No. Start with three times. Tweak from there. But make sure you're you're pricing in your figuring in your time into your pricing. That's it. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure you sign up for our newsletter on the website. It's bettersignshop.com. If you guys have other questions you'd like to hear Yoda and Sign Burrito, Burrito King answer for you guys, send those questions to hey, H-E-Y, at bettersignshop.com. We'll answer your questions on the air, probably in a way longer format than you intended, but... They will be good answers. We promise. <laughs> I love it, guys. Happy to be back. All right. Thanks, guys. We're happy Catch to you be next back. time. Bye. Bye, everybody. If you liked this episode, make sure you hit subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And check out our website, bettersignshop.com. Get free resources and helpful tools on growing your shop. Thanks for listening. 